Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay. Good morning, everybody. We'll start with the word of prayer. Lord, our Father, we thank you for waking us up this morning, the gift of life, and we thank you for the presence of those who are gathered here today. We depend on you, O Lord, knowing that without your spirit, our learning and understanding of your word is impossible. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be with us, to animate us, and to illuminate us that we may digest, process, truly understand, and have your word, which will be delivered today, abide in us for our entire lifetimes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So today we're continuing our series called The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. And today we're going to go through a big chunk of the books of the Bible. We're going to go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and talk about the Israelite monarchy, which includes 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, as well as 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Now, the way to ground your mind and formalize your understanding about this big chunk of books is that, geographically speaking, everything that happens in these books happens on the land, happens in the Promised Land, happens in Canaan. So the area of geography that we call modern-day Israel, all the events we're going to talk about today happen on the land, and that's a recurring theme that runs through all of these books. Joshua, for example, is a conquest of the land. Judges tells us about deliverers who are raised in the land. First and Second Samuel tell us about the development of the kingdom on the land. And then at the end of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the people are exiled out of the land. So the land is a, a core foundational theme. So last time we ended in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we found the people of Israel literally on the border of the promised land. They were on the border, but they had yet to cross in. Moses dies before the people cross into the promised land. God brings them up to a mountain and says, this is the land the people will inherit, but he passes away before they cross over. Moses blesses the people, and God basically tells Moses, when the people enter into the land, they are going to disobey. So Deuteronomy ends in somewhat of a cautionary note where there is an anticipation of conquest, but there's also a hesitancy in the willingness of the people to obey. And Moses even tells the people, if you rebelled against me and the Lord when I was alive, what is now going to happen when I am gone? So Moses passes the torch Symbolically speaking, there's a dynastic secession to Joshua, and now we find ourselves in the book of Joshua. So someone please tell me what the big, what's the, the big, big, big idea of the book of Joshua? Conquering the land. So the big idea of the book of Joshua is conflict and 
conquest. The big idea of the book of Joshua is conflict and conquest. In many ways, Joshua completes the redemption history of Israel because Exodus was the redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua now represents the redemption of the people into the promised land. And a key idea in the book of Joshua is the idea of possession, possession of the land. And that possession wasn't, God didn't give the people possession as is. The people's possession of the land was always contingent upon their obedience to God's instructions. Now, big ideas. When you talk about the Old Testament book of Joshua, we have to understand there is a neat correlation between the Old Testament book of Joshua and the New Testament book of Ephesians. Because in Joshua, we talk about conflict and conquest. We talk about the defeat of physical, natural, literal enemies who had literal fortresses and literal swords. In the book of Ephesians now, in the New Testament, we talk about the spiritual armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. So in the Old Testament now, the chosen covenantal people of God, through conflict and conquest, were intended to possess a blessing, were intended to possess an inheritance. New Testament now, the spiritual community of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ are now intended to possess the abundant life, possess spiritual blessings by fighting spiritual battles. Now someone, someone tell me if the pattern in the book of Joshua, which correlates to Ephesians, tells us the pattern of the inheritance of abundance and blessings is conflict and conquest. Why would God choose that route for his people? Why is the route towards the promise? Why is the route towards blessings through conflict and conquest? Why doesn't God just remove the enemies and make life easy? The simplest answer is that our faith is always active. Our faith is never passive. Yes, God could remove the devil. God could remove all of our enemies. But then we would lose the ability to now be conquerors in Jesus Christ. And the power of God, the, the power of God working in our lives, in the yielded life of the believer to the Holy Spirit in such a way through conflict and conquest, God now demonstrates his sovereignty and God now demonstrates his power. No matter, how, no matter what your physical form is, God always intends the soldiers in his army to have spiritual muscles, big, brawny spiritual muscles. And the way we develop those spiritual muscles is through conflict and conquest. The book of Joshua. So who was Joshua? Joshua was the great military leader of the people of Israel, and he's a type, he's a foreshadowing of Jesus in the New Testament because Joshua's name means Jehovah saves, and the same word in the New Testament is Jesus. Now in Joshua chapter 5, we have what's called a theophany. 
meaning there's a before Christ manifestation of God in the physical world. It's a fantastic scene. So the end of Joshua 5, before they conquer Jericho, Joshua sees this mighty man of God who strikes him as a powerful warrior. And he looks at this warrior and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man then says, no, which was a strange answer. That wasn't in Joshua's paradigm. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he says, no, because the question Joshua asked was the wrong question. To have, to be a conqueror, to take possession of the promise, to be a conqueror in Jesus Christ. The question we ought not to ask is, is God for us? But rather, the question we ask is, are we for God? Because it's the sovereign will of God that is sent forth in eternity past. It moves in and through our reality, doing everything precisely and perfectly. God set it out to accomplish, and that will now meets God back in eternity, doing everything he called it to do. And the question we all have to ask ourselves now is, are we for God? Are we in line with his efficacious will? So in Joshua chapter 6, we see the first conquest in Canaan. We have the Israelites taking the city of Jericho. And we have in Joshua chapter 6 what is called the harem in Hebrew, H-E-R-E-M. The harem means the ban. Anything in the, con in the conquest of the, of the promised land, anything that fell under the harem, that fell under the ban, was something that was now set aside for destruction, set aside to God to be utterly and totally destroyed. Joshua 6.17 says, the city, Jericho, shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. So anything that God decreed that falled under the harem essentially was to be wiped out from all existence. And we see what the harem looks like in a few verses down. Joshua 6, 20 to 21 says, When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. The walls of Jericho collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now here's the issue. When we now, in the 21st century, look back at the Old Testament, because the harem, in essence, the ban, was a declaration of holy war. It was God essentially saying, anything that falls under the harem is to be annihilated. Now, when we now in the 21st century look back at the harem, we ask ourselves, isn't that brutal? Isn't that barbaric? Isn't that unjust? I mean, that sounds cruel. The Israelites walking into a city and essentially destroying everything. Not a trace of anything was left. And here's the thing we have to understand about the harem.
when we talk about the people of Israel going into individual cities in Canaan and conquering them, there were no good guys and there were no bad guys because no one in either situation were the good guys. The Israelites weren't the heroes of the story taking out the bad guys. God said of the Israelites in Deuteronomy, he told the people, you were stubborn from the day I knew you. So they weren't innocent. Neither were the Canaanites. There was a system of religious practice in Canaan at the time where there was a host of immoral practices. There was especially a practice of child sacrifice where parents would literally bring their children to be burned in front of an altar. And the harem was not instituted willy-nilly. God didn't wake up one day and institute the harem. If we go back to Genesis now, there was a continual, perpetual cycle of immorality and ignoring God, which went on for hundreds of hundreds of years. And God then instituted the harem when the totality of the iniquity was complete. So the harem wasn't the good guys declaring holy war on the bad guys. It was basically bad guys, Israel, who simply were the recipients of God's grace going to holy war with other bad guys who didn't listen to God and who rejected him. A key point here to remember, God is always willing to spare those who profess faith in him. That's where the story of Rahab comes from. Because we go back to Genesis now, Abraham once asks God, if there are some who are righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city? And God says, yes. What now happens? Lot and his family come out, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. What happens in Jericho? Rahab and her family members believe the Lord. They trusted in him. So they were now what? spared from the harem, and they were now incorporated into the community of Israelites. The story of Nineveh in the book of Jonah tells us God is always willing to hold back judgment, to hold back condemnation if people recognize him and turn from their ways. So is there ever an instance where holy war is justified today? Absolutely not. The harem was a particular event intended for a particular people in a particular place in a particular time. This is what Norman Geisler writes in a popular survey of the Old Testament. Quote, in regards to the harem, the battle confronting Israel was not simply a religious war, it was a theocratic war. Israel was directly ruled by God, and the extermination was God's direct command. No other nation, either before or after Israel, has been a theocracy. Thus, those commands were unique. Israel as a theocracy was an instrument of judgment in the hands of God. So we now know, we're now smart, we're educated, we know what the harem was. What was the point of the harem? Why did God command it? What was the point of it? What was the point of holy war? What was the point of the ban? Remember, God liberated his people out of Egypt so that they would be free to worship him. 
The point of the harem was to eradicate any traces of idolatry. Therefore, there would be no temptations, no lures to take the people away from worshiping God. In the harem, God basically says, you go in, you strike down, you basically pulverize any altars, any images of false gods. So when the people inherited Canaan, there wouldn't be nothing to bring to their mind a remembrance of false gods like Baal or Asherah or anything else that would lure them away to serving God exclusively. And what does history tell us? The Israelites didn't obey the stipulations of the harem fully. What was the result? The result was syncretism. And all of those idols, all of those people, all of those things now, which made them remember about the pagan religious practices, now lured the Israelites into syncretism. Whereas it was not God and God alone, it was God and. It was God and Baal, God and Asherah. Fast forward hundreds of years, what happened at Mount Carmel? You had Elijah and false prophets, and the people were what? Wavering between opinions because it was not God alone, it was God and. And just to keep, make sure we're clear, what ended up happening to Israel hundreds of years after the failure to execute the Kareem? They were now exiled out of the land, which tells us something. God is telling us in his word, it never was about the land. It was always about God. Because as the Canaanites were booted out hundreds of years later, so were the Israelites. You can have land, but not have God, and that's a problem. So at the end of the book of Joshua, there's a completion, or almost completion, of the conquest of Canaan. There's a division of different parts of the land that Joshua distributes, and you have different tribes settling in different geographic areas. Then we have the book of Judges. And the big idea of the book of Judges is simple. The big idea of the book of Judges is Israel's transition from a tribal federation to a monarchy. Basically, the people step into the promised land. They conquer territory and cities. They don't have a king or a central national hero because after Joshua dies, you don't have a a type of Moses or a type of Joshua national figurehead. What you do have are different tribes in different areas, and there are local molds of leadership, but not one centralized leader. So throughout the book of Judges, that's the history of the people before a king is actually installed. Now someone tell me, who were the judges? Right, Samson, Demra, Ehud, uh, Shamgar, Gideon, they were all the judges, but what was their purpose? What was their function? The judges essentially were deliverers. The judges weren't judges as we think about today. They weren't guys who had black robes and a gavel and who pronounced a sentence. The judges essentially were local figureheads who during a time of crisis or who during a time of strife, God raised them up to deliver the people. So the judges never served a judicial function. They served a function as far as deliverance was concerned. And each judge always operated in a particular area of Canaan. They never rose to national fame as did Joshua or Moses.
This is what the book of Judges tells us. The book of Judges gives us a cycle of history. Because in the book of Judges, there's a pattern. There's a circular pattern which goes around and around and around and around. In Judges, you basically have the people when when they're on top. When they are serving and worshiping God and things are going okay. Predictably, what happens now is the people begin forsaking God and going their own way. The book of Judges says the people did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So they begin practicing immorality. That then leaves them to forsake God. God then judges them, and they fall into a conflict with one of their neighbors, and they're then placed into servitude. So they go from serving God down to serving someone else. Then what happens? Now they're feeling the pain. Now they're feeling the hurt. Now they remember God. So they begin turning from their ways and repent, and they cry out to God and say, God, please save us. And what does God do? He raises up a judge. He raises up a deliverer who now ushers the people from that position of servitude into liberating them, into freedom. And predictably, after one judge is raised up and the people are now free, what happens after a time? They forsake God again and begin doing evil. It goes around and around and around and around. And this cycle essentially gives us a pattern of the rise and fall of nations. When it comes to Israel now, the book of Judges tells us that predictably what, was, uh, what you could rely on is the faithlessness of the people and the faithfulness of God. Because although Israel forsook God many, many times, God never forsook his people. And here's an interesting note. I said, the book of Judges gives us a cycle of history. When we make a connection now between the book of Judges and what Isaiah says in the first chapter of his book, it tells us a pattern that nations follow that highlights their rise and their fall. Judges tells us that how the fall of a nation begins is by forgetting about God. That then leads to immorality, and that then leads to political anarchy. It begins spiritually with people forgetting about God, then immorality. People do what's right in their own eyes, and as a result, now you have political anarchy. If you've ever wondered why we live in a nation of protest, where Monday morning people protest Mondays, and then Tuesday morning people protest, the people are protesting on Monday and protest Tuesday. And the next day there are more protesters to counter the original protesters. That now was the political, it begins with forgetting about God and someone having the battle cry, I will do what is right in mine own eyes. They reject God, they reject power structures, they reject authority, they reject the civil norms of society, and now you reject everything and protest everything because God inside is me. And Judges tells us time and time again that if a nation forgets about God, God will forget about the nation. History fails to record thousands and thousands of years tells us that there has never, ever been an instance where a nation that falls into immorality or moral decay, 
that they also fail to go into economic and political decline. It begins with a spiritual purpose first. Reject God, then comes the immorality, and now the division and collapse of nations. So the book of Judges now is a bridge between the people entering into the promised land and the monarchy beginning in 1st and 2nd Samuel. But before we get to Samuel, the book of Ruth. This is a short book, four chapters, but it's a powerful book. It's about a Moabite woman, her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's a foreigner. She's redeemed. Someone tell me. There are two big ideas in the book of Ruth. Someone tell me what they are. The two big ideas in the book of Ruth is the idea of a kinsman redeemer and genealogy. Let me take a step back. What the book of Ruth does, at the end of chapter 4, it establishes a genealogy which proves that King David is a Judahite. Why is that important? Because way back in Genesis, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah, it was said that the scepter or the symbol of kingly authority would never depart from his hand. So when Ruth makes it clear that David, who we'll talk about in a minute, was a Judahite, that means he's a rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And David was a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, right. So Jesus, being a Judahite, a descendant of David, now is also the, in the biological line to have a kingly authority. Ruth, Ruth proves David was a Judahite. The other idea of the book of Ruth is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth was Boaz. The big idea of the kinsman redeemer is this. You have a a family member who is in need. You have a family member who, by their own means, they can't survive and they need assistance. Now a kinsman redeemer steps in and protects them and secures their vitality so they will not perish. In the book of Ruth, Ruth was kinsman redeemed by Boaz. Basically, she was an extended member of the family who lost her husband. And in that society at the time, that meant her entire sense of security or well-being was now gone. Boaz now sees someone who's estranged, who's on the margins, who by their own merits would have a life that would be miserable, and he redeems her, marries her, and now enters into a covenantal promise where he'll protect her and provide for her his entire life. What's the point? Once we now understand the idea of a kinsman redeemer, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, right? God being God and us being human beings, we are distant. We're not family members. But now when God becomes a human being and now God becomes a man, humanity now is the extended family of a person, of a human being. So the God-man Christ now sees members of the human family in a position of vulnerability, seeing that we were on the margins, seeing that we were lost. And he now redeems us and brings us into Christ. So now we are liberated and have redemption in Jesus. So in the God-man Christ, man saves another man who is in need. Small book, powerful message. First and second Samuel. The big idea, 
of 1st and 2nd Samuel is the rise of the theocracy in the promised land into a kingdom. Now 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles kind of mesh into one another. Because in 1st and 2nd Samuel, you have the establishment and rise of the kingdom of Israel. In 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you have the series of kings who are mostly bad, who are kings over the land, and then you have the division and exile of the people out of the land. In other words, the complete dissolution of the kingdom itself. Now, 1st and 2nd Samuel are not about primarily Samuel, but he figures prominently into the stories in those books. Now, 1st and 2nd Samuel has a lot of rich stories. It has David and Goliath. It has David and Jonathan. It has King Saul visiting the witch at Endor. It has the Davidic covenant. It has all these wonderful, marvelous stories. But the thing I want to focus on the most in 1st and 2nd Samuel is the idea of the kingdom of Israel, where you had a real kingdom with real borders, with a real throne, and a real crown, and a real king that had real soldiers. It was a physical, national kingdom where people of Israel served whoever was on the throne. And the reason why the idea of a kingdom is important is when we look forward to the New Testament now, when Jesus now comes onto the scene, he now ushers in what? The kingdom of God. Way, way ahead in the end times, in the new creation, where there is a new heaven and new earth, paradise essentially going to be a redeemed, regenerated kingdom of God, where God will sit on the throne and the people of God will now freely and willfully serve and worship him in eternity forever. And if we read 1 Samuel 10.25, what does he tell the people? He told the people the ordinances of the kingdom. In Luke 1, when the angel is talking to Mary about the baby that's in her belly, he says, he, Christ, will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus himself says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God tells us that God's chosen form of government is a monarchy. Now, That's not a political statement. God's chosen form of government being a monarchy doesn't mean that we should reject our constitution and install a king instead of a president. No. His chosen form of a government is a monarchy. And when we talk about natural governments here on earth, it's not the form of the government that's the problem. It's the people in the government that make it up which causes those governments to be fallen. And the reason why God's form of government is a monarchy is because he is God. He is sovereign. God doesn't need a cabinet. He doesn't need advisors. He doesn't need a vote. He is basically the sovereign creator who rules his subjects in his kingdom. And God is the ultimate sovereign king who will in paradise forever rule over a perfect kingdom 
what we'll see in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is a series over and over and over again of imperfect kings who now rule over imperfect kingdoms, which points forward in the end times to the perfect kingdom to come. Now here are three ideas that First and Second Samuel gives us as a glimpse into history. It tells us one. It foreshadows a coming millennial kingdom where there's a need for a king with power who exercises that power in righteousness. It tells us about a king who will rule in full dependence on God. And it also tells us about a king who will rule in full obedience. Because all the kings that Israel's history describe always fail to meet those three benchmarks. The prophet Samuel comes to fame in the two books named after him. And he comes and is installed in the prophetic office at a time where morale is very, very low. Basically, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by foreign soldiers. And the Ark, eventually, by a series of supernatural happenings, ends up coming back to Israel on an ox cart, being guided by the Holy Spirit. So the people were down real, real low because the ark, the symbol of, Christ, of uh, God's throne, was now gone. And when that ark now returns, the people rejoice. One would think that with the return of the Ark of the Covenant, the people would now renew their obedience to God. But in reality, that was a trigger for one of the most uh, diabolical times in the history of Israel, where instead of turning back to God, the people essentially turn away from him farther and harder than they ever had before. And it's at that point in Israel's history where the people say, we now want to be like our neighbors, give us a king. And God basically tells the people, if I give you a king, he's going to take your money, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your, your horses, he's going to take from you and enrich himself and oppress you. And people say, yes, we want that. So you know what God does? God gives the people what they want. And he gave the people the king that they deserved. King Saul, Israel's first king, was doomed to fail from the start. Because here's a Bible trivia question. What tribe was King Saul from? Benjamin. What did I just say before? The king is supposed to be a Judahite, not a Benjamite, which tells us there was something wrong from the get-go. And here's a crucial point. Remember, in Judges, the people did not have a unified leader, so there was decentralization. So if there was a pocket of badness, it was locally contained. What happens now when a king is installed is now you have a centralized, organized nation. So now, with the installation of a king and there is national unity, now sin and immorality had national repercussions. Now the people were unified in turning away from God. But despite the fact that the uh, Israelite monarchy had some less than favorable beginnings, God in his sovereign hand of providence was still working in and through reality to bring David to the throne next and ultimately to Christ later on down the road. So 
Again, King Saul wasn't God's choice. It was the people's choice, and God gave the people what he wanted. Now, here comes David. Everybody knows about King David. He's the Bible's most famous king. Samuel, uh, Saul dies in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, and David comes on the scene in the book of 1 Samuel. David was from the tribe of Judah, and he basically became an instant celebrity. Everyone knows the story. King Saul, David's brothers, and Israelite soldiers, they were on a battlefield. Opposite them was a a foreign army, and Goliath was their champion. He was nine feet tall. He was a giant. And day in and day out, for weeks on end, he would come out and taunt Israel. He would morally and psychologically just crush them. So David one day doesn't come to fight. He comes to bring his brother's food, and he sees Goliath there taunting people. And David says, who is this guy? Who, how dare he taunt Israel and the name of the Most High God? And he goes up to King Saul, and he says, can I uh, fight this giant? King Saul says, okay, I guess that's all right. David comes out in the battlefield. He removes the armor he was given, and with his trusty slingshot, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares to taunt the armies of the living God? David, his heart was pierced because he couldn't live with the fact that this uncircumcised foreigner had the audacity not to mock men, but to mock the living God. So David walks out there, and using what he was used to, he takes Goliath out and then uses a sword, decapitates him. It is no wonder that David became an instant celebrity. He basically went from being nobody to being a national hero. Even if you're not a fan of the Bible, you probably have heard the story of David and Goliath before. And David is what we call today a Renaissance man. He was a general. He was a soldier. He was a politician. He was an administrator. He was a shepherd. He was a harpist. And he was an adulterer. Let's not think about that. But in spite of the fact that everything David did, if you ask me in my personal opinion, David's greatest contribution to the edification of saints in history was his literary works, was his composition in writing the Psalms. Because David slaying Goliath was an event that made David famous But what David did in writing a bulk of the Psalms, here you had a man whose heart panted after God, who was now expressing that heart in words. He was now giving the people of God for thousands and thousands of years a blueprint on how to speak to God. He was giving people an insight. And if you truly love and adore God, this is how your heart sings in the Psalms. And that was a process that has inspired, I dare say, millions of people for the last thousands of years. Psalm 51 alone. People think that Goliath falling was hard. But what people fail to realize is that the fall David took spiritually in Psalm 51 
which is the golden blueprint on how a person repents, turns away from sin, and turns toward God, the fall David took in his heart in Psalm 51 was much harder and much more powerful than when Goliath fell in 1 Samuel. Now, all that being said about David, one crucial idea I want to make sure we're aware about about David is this, is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Can someone tell me what the Davidic covenant was? The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not only is it one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, it's one of the most beautiful passages in literature, period. And what it describes is an unconditional divine pledge from God to David that someone will maintain the dynasty of King David forever. What the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 tells us is that a descendant of David will rule an eternal kingdom forever. The Davidic covenant basically points forward to Christ. David was a natural king who had a natural kingdom. David one day says, God, I'm going to build you a bait, a house. God responds and says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a dynasty which will last forever. And the descendant of David now, Jesus Christ, will be the ultimate fulfiller of the Davidic covenant who rules on the throne for eternity and his kingdom will be without end. So that's 1st and 2nd Samuel. Last four books. These are quick. 1st and 2nd Kings. Someone tell me, what's the big idea of 1st and 2nd Kings? Kings. There you go. The big idea of 1st and 2nd Kings are the kings. 1st and 2nd Kings follows a succession of historical kings after David, and each king is measured by David. The line happens over and over again in 1st and 2nd Kings as David his father. 1st and 2nd Kings basically tell us what the kings of Israel did. Now here's the, the really short version. The kingdom of Israel is unified under David. It remains unified under David's son, Solomon, the next king. After Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. There's a northern kingdom of Israel, and there's a southern kingdom of Judah. So there were only two Israelite kings where the nation was a unified whole. After those two, it was divided. There are multi, it, the, it's multifactorial why the kingdom divided. But basically, the kingdom of Israel reached a peak with David. It began to take a dip with Solomon. After his death and it divided, the nation was split. And pretty much after that, there was a slow and steady decline to the point hundreds of years later, the people were exiled out of the land. David, uh, his heart panted after God all his life. With Solomon now, you basically had the national introduction of syncretism. Solomon having hundreds of wives and concubines was a mirror of a spiritual reality. In that, he recognized God as God, but he served God and 
all the foreign wives that he had lured him away from exclusively worshiping God, and he actually built altars to pagan deities. So it's that division of his heart which ultimately resulted in the division of the kingdom. And Solomon's known for his massive building projects, for his wealth. But during Solomon's reign, he instituted what's called the corvée, where he basically enslaved Israelites. It was harsh and it was brutal. So after he died, people were in uproar and said, we don't want any more of this. And there was a split of the kingdom. The northern kingdom lasted for roughly 200 years, and there were multiple different tribes who had the office of king. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted 350 years, and as Judah suggests, there was one tribe who held the scepter, all men from the line of Judah. Here's an important New Testament connection. There was a king in the north called Omri, And what Omri did is he made a center of worship in the north in the capital city of Samaria. Now that should ring a bell. Because what Omri basically did now is he basically said, we're not going to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. We're not going to worship in God's ordained place. We're going to worship in the place we want to. So now everyone in the north begins having their centralized place of worship somewhere else. So when we go to the New Testament now, and we talk about the Jews and the Samaritans, this is where it has its roots. You basically had a voluntary choice to worship in a place that was not God's choice, and now there was religious hostility. So in the New Testament, one would think that the Samaritans were foreigners, or they were another tribe of people, but in reality, they were fellow Israelites who were despised because they chose to worship in a divergent place than the temple in Jerusalem. The political lesson of First and Second Kings is that the crown on earth must be in sync with the crown in heaven if the people of God are to experience blessings and prosperity. And the moral lesson is that man is unable to rule himself in the world. The last thing I'll say is this. First Second Chronicles is very quick. First and Second Chronicles covers the same period of time as First and Second Kings. But here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit now goes back in First and Second Chronicles and says, this is basically what happened in First and Second Kings. This is what all that means. First and Second Kings tells you what happens from the standpoint of the throne, what the kings did. First and Second Chronicles tells you what happens from the standpoint of the altar. It tells you the theological meaning of what happened in history as to what the kings did. At the end of First Chronicles, David basically assembles everything Solomon will need to build the temple. And then in Second Chronicles, Solomon actually builds the temple which is the centralized place of worship. So in the wilderness now, the people had a mobile set, uh, centralized place of worship in the tabernacle. When they move into the promised land after hundreds of years, that centralized place is now in the temple in Jerusalem. Now here's Bible trivia. There was a 350-year gap approximately between the people stepping into the promised land and between Solomon building a temple. 
So where was the centralized place of worship in that gap? Shiloh. Till Shiloh comes, that's the relevance. So essentially the tabernacle was uh, placed in Shiloh and that was the centralized place of worship until Solomon completed his temple in Jerusalem. So that's a broad sweep of all those books. If I did a good job of, of teaching the material, you'll realize that to be a godly person, to be a leader, someone needs wisdom, someone needs guidance, someone needs practical lessons to navigate the ins and outs of life. And that's going to point us and transition us to our next topic next month where we'll talk about wisdom literature where this is the Bible's very practical guide for everyday living, and you'll see and understand that the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, all the wisdom literature, is as applicable now as it was thousands of years ago. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.